The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast, everyone. As you know, this is the cast where I get an excuse to talk to some of the most interesting people in the wealth management space who are moving the industry forward in innovative and interesting directions. And with that, I'm happy to be talking today to Max Schatzow. Max is a, an attorney with a focus on advisor regulations and compliance. He's the co-founder and partner of RIA Lawyers, very on-the-nose firm name, and comments on the industry across social media, particularly on Twitter, where he tweets persistently, maybe obsessively, under the <laughs> Advisor Council moniker, uh, and that's with an E, not an O, importantly, a point of contention that we won't get into, but the Advisor Council at Advisor Council, that's uh, on Twitter. But Max, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, David. Really appreciate it. For those of us who don't know, was that brief overview accurate? Anything you want to add to that, uh, your, your background, where you're coming from? Yeah, I, th- I think that the Twitter at- description was most apt. And I think my wife would agree with that as well. I, I spend probably way too much time on the bird, but uh, I- I'm somewhat addicted to it. No, I, I get it. And I, it's, I, I enjoy uh, seeing your tweets. And, uh, you know, I would love to maybe uh, talk a little bit. Do you use, because you are a well-known presence on Twitter, uh, uh, comment regularly on the issues that affect advisors on Twitter. I think intelligent commentary and and good observations. Do you use any sort of programming in your tweets or are you just on there improvising or do you schedule? Do you use a a platform for it? Uh, How do you, how do you keep such a, an aggressive, I guess, presence on the (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, I don't do any real scheduling of tweets. Everything is sort of whatever comes to my mind in the very moment. I will create and curate threads from time to time, you know, around certain issues that I think are important. I, it's funny. I don't, I never really thought of social media or Twitter specifically as like a business development tool, but it's certainly Mm -hmm. turned into one of my best performing business development tools. And so I, I try and balance what I'm talking about, what I'm tweeting about in terms of what I think my audience wants to hear from me, like RIA specific issues versus other federal securities issues that I just think are really interesting. So I, I try and battle that sometimes. And you find clients uh, via the tweet? <laughs> I, I certainly have and I do. And I, you know, I've had a number of clients reach out in just... You know, in the last week, I've probably had three or four prospects reach out. You know, trying trying to secure services. So, absolutely, yeah, that's great. I, it obliquely, I guess, gets us to the point of the conversation that I wanted to have with you today on uh, uh, the new advertising rules and marketing rules for financial advisors. I want to have a better understanding of it. We have done some webinars and forums on this topic, and they've been well attended. Uh, it makes me feel that advisors are still, even though this rule has technically been in effect for about a year, I guess, uh, advisors are still kind of grappling with it. And and why on the surface, it might seem a pretty obvious uh, change. I think there are nuances in there that uh, uh, 
advisors probably need to know. Uh, you know, we know that the new marketing rule went into effect on, I guess, May 4th, 2021. Advisors have another year, I guess, or uh, coming up in the fall to become into compliance with it. Folks are calling it the most significant change in more than 50 years and how the SEC reviews advertising and solicitation by investment advisors. What's your view? What, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about where the rule, where it stood and what's changed with the new rule. Give us the top line and then we can deep dive. Yeah, it's it's been such a dramatic change in the you know advertising landscape for registered investment advisors. The I think starting at the top, right, we have this new definition of advertisement, which really was intended to bring the advertising sort of scope into the 21st century, really. And so now this, you know, now the new definition it covers more things than the prior definition. Um, you know, it'll it'll cover certain, you know, videos and other sort of audio recordings and things like that, that the old marketing rule maybe, you know, didn't necessarily capture. And so that's sort of the starting point in the review is what is the new definition of advertisement? I'm not going to bore you and walk you through that definition, but it's sort of important to know the distinction that the actual definition changed. So that's that's the first big change. The next big change is that we went from having you know a few very specific prohibitions in the old marketing or advertising rule to having these new what we'll call general prohibitions and they're sort of like more based on conduct content and they're not so specific and by that I mean and I'll give you an example so one of the new general prohibitions is you know, an advisor can't say anything that's untrue or state it, you know, or, or make an omission, you know, a material omission about something, right? That's an idea of a general prohibition that that actually carries over somewhat from the old rule. Another one that, you know, is, is slightly different is you, you can't, you must provide sort of a fair and balanced treatment of any sort of discussion of material risks in an investment. So that, that gives you a sense of what the new general prohibitions look like. And then there's two or three, depending on how you sort of categorize them, big, big changes to the rule that differ from the prior rule is now, now advisors can use testimonials and endorsements in their marketing subject to certain conditions. So that's a huge, huge difference. The old rule had a very, very specific and strict prohibition on their use. New rule permits testimonials and endorsements subject to certain conditions. And then the last two changes, and I sort of think the third-party rating change is somewhat intertwined with testimonials and endorsements, is now there. So, so third-party ratings is this concept that an advisor can advertise its receipt of an award or a third-party rating and there's very clear guidance in the new rule on how to go about doing that. And, and the last and maybe one of the most important or biggest sort of differences in the new rule is that there's very clear rules now on how advisors can use performance advertising. Um, and so the old rule was, was sort of, the old rule didn't contain any information on that. You had to used to go digging through a ton of no action letters, which are these letters issued by the SEC about what you can do, what you can't do, how to say it, those kind of things. And so that's the big changes. You know, those are the big changes in the new marketing rule, David. Hopefully I didn't bore you. No, no, not at all. And uh, I think this notion of 
endorsement, you know, and testimony, I think is where some of the stuff gets a little bit confused, right? I, I explained to me previously, no advisor could use a client saying, my advisor's great. They really helped me out a lot. You couldn't put that out there anywhere. Now you can. Talk to me a little bit about the rules around it. If you're soliciting that endorsement from that client, uh, you have to put a disclosure on it. If the client offers up that endorsement on their own, no need to uh, put any kind of disclosures around it? Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a good good question. And there's definitely a clear distinction here. There's There's two concepts in the adopting role release called integration and adoption. And so if an advisor is deemed to have adopted a statement by a client, then it'll be as if they said it themselves or made the advertisement themselves. Integration is a similar concept. You know, if an advisor does enough to, to basically take ownership over a client's statement, then it'll be as viewed as having integrated itself with that statement and it is responsible for its content. And so let me give you a couple of examples to really understand those two concepts on when an advisor might have adopted or been integrated with a client endorsement or testimonial. Okay. <clears throat> let's start with adoption first. I think that's the easier sort of concept. So let's say a client logs on to Angie's List right? A totally independent third-party website and leaves a raving, raving good review about RIA XYZ. Yep. And the, the advisor learns of that. They, they decide, hey, that client said something fantastic about us. Let's go use that in our new marketing campaign. And so we're going to put that in a statement, in a video clip that we're going to show on our website or on a landing page. At that point, when the advisor takes that statement and uses it in its own advertisement, it has clearly adopted that statement from the client. And so that sort of shows you how the adoption framework works in whether or not an advisor has used a, you know, a testimonial or endorsement. Any so, questions there, David? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, it seems to me that great. So I can go onto Angie's List or Yelp or anything and find uh, uh, some independent third-party platform where my clients are raving about me, pluck those out, put them on my website, and, and there's no problem with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's generally correct, right? I mean, you, you would have to comply with the disclosure requirements of the new rule, and you'll have to make sure that you, you understand, did we compensate that person to say those things? Uh, you'll, you'll have to have some compliance procedures to sort of monitor those statements and make sure they're accurate. But yes, I mean, that is sort of the idea of how you can use a client state in your marketing campaigns. So this notion of compensating them, there is the issue of if I'm an advisor and I go out and I ask my clients to say nice things about me. Right. Does that change, that, the, does that change it, the equation? It does possibly, right? Then we get into this concept called integration. And it, it deals with how much or how little, I guess, depending on how you look at it, how much influence you had on that statement or that endorsement or that testimonial getting created. And so there isn't very clear guidance in the adopting rule release on where that line should be drawn. And I wish there was, so we had a little bit more guidance to sort of counsel clients on that. Um, but 
that's sort of the the big unknown in in how do you go about getting these statements on a Google business review or some other third-party review platform? What if, and I'm, and I'm just hypothetically speaking here, I'm just thinking as an RIA, what I might want to do uh, to market my firm uh, might be to ask some clients to come into the office and uh, videotape them, you know, explaining their experience with the firm. Uh, is that solicitation of a third party? And does that change the dynamic at all? Maybe I've offered them lunch. You know, how does that work? Is it all fair game? Yes, generally speaking. I think the, the new rule deals with a, you know, th- there's this de minimis compensation threshold in the rule. And so if, if you provide a person with a benefit under that threshold, then there's certain requirements that you're excused from performing under the new rule, right? And so one of those things is for, for paid testimonials and endorsements, you're supposed to have a written agreement with the person providing the endorsement or testimonial. Mm-hmm. And so you're excused from that written agreement requirement if the if you basically if you compensate that person directly or indirectly less than a thousand dollars. So if you do that, then you know that it certainly limits some of the compliance requirements under the rule. If the compensation is over a thousand dollars, how does that change the outcome? Not, not much. I mean, what, what I would say is then you, you know, you have to then have a, a written agreement with the, you know, the person, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're going to go pay a, a movie star to help promote your firm or mm-hmm. a, a golfer, right? You know, you're going to give them yeah. some kind of paid, you know, paid promotional, you know, endorsement deal. Then you you probably need to have an agreement with them outlining the terms of that deal and what it looks like, and and how you're going to compensate them and and comply with a, a few other requirements. And then that disclosure do, do disclosures have to be on that advertisement in some whatever form it's on? Yes, I mean uh, the the rule says the advisor has to disclose, or you have to reasonably believe that the person providing the testimonial or endorsement is disclosing. Um, you know, whether the person's a client, whether they receive cra- cash or non-cash compensation and any sort of other material conflicts that, that arise from the arrangement. Yeah. I, and I guess, I, I guess you can see where this is going. I mean, your example of an athlete is a, is a great one. Uh, uh, a lot of advisors maybe have professional athletes as clients. Uh, they want that professional athlete to do a local television shot commercial, or maybe just, uh, you know, say some nice things on Twitter. I guess, where's the, the danger line here? What, you know, when you're counseling advisors, you know, my sense is that they're still all very cautious about it, but I would think that a lot of advisors would say, wow, gloves are off. I can market myself like a, any other widget out there in the world. Are there danger lines here that advisors aren't aware of? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think when we're dealing with TV or radio, I, I don't think there's a ton of danger. I think it's fairly easy to make sure you go through the rules requirements and you just formulaically check the box on each of the compliance requirements, right? The disclosure, the written agreement, making sure we're, you know, we're we're making disclosures about the conflicts of interest and cash compensation. 
it just really isn't that difficult. Some of the other, you know, arrangements that that we're we're seeing and we're bumping into are a lot more complex than than typical radio or TV, you know, advertisements. Okay, well, give me an example of one of those. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest ones we're seeing is 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 how to get positive reviews onto your Google or or other platforms that sort of rank and rate advisors. Just because the the rule is very unclear on where the line is drawn on on and I used the term integration before, but I, excuse me that the, the term is actually entanglement. In case mm-hmm. anyone is. Uh, you know, going to question my authority here. But um, so, yes, I think the the issue there is just there's so much unknown on how an advisor complies with the new rule on those platforms, um, because it's really difficult to make sure that you're, you're staying up on every single review on that platform mm-hmm. and you're making every necessary disclosure on that platform if that platform is deemed to be your ad- advertisement. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see this being uh, unclear, right? Because there's a lot of permutations in there. I mean, if I'm a financial advisor and uh, I have some SEO strategy for uh, getting my firm high up on uh, search rankings and part of my SEO strategy is to use terms like uh, best investments or highest returns, uh, you know, those maybe don't necessarily appear upfront on my website, but if I'm using those SEO terms to kind of game the system, I, is there, I mean, that's, that's just new. That's a new arena for the SEC, isn't it? I, I don't know if that's any different than the old arena. And I'm not so sure that SEO terms that don't get publicly seen necessarily meet the definition of an advertisement, right? I mean, I I just don't think they're client facing, so it's hard to construe those as advertisements, but they certainly Mm -hmm. raise all sorts of questions about, you know, is it ethical? Is it fraudulent? Is it misleading? Is it some other course of conduct that violates the Advisors Act? But I just don't know if it's necessarily best viewed in the advertising framework. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me then a little bit about the performance uh, aspect here. I mean, advisors... Generally, when we've been hearing about this trend forever of advisors moving away from uh, investment management as their selling point, yet many, many, many still, uh, you know, consider themselves fantastic uh, stock pickers, uh, maybe great option strategies. Uh, you know, what changes for them? Uh, they're now going to be able to say, uh, our fund returned, uh, our clients experienced a. 9 billion percent return over the past five years. Here's the chart <laughs> up and to the right uh, without any kind of caveats or explanation. No, I mean, the, they're, they're ha- I mean, in the scheme of things, the advertising rule regarding performance probably hasn't changed that much, right? But there are a couple big differences, I would say. One is that anytime an advisor is showing gross performance, they will now need to show net performance alongside that. And, and by, by gross, we mean sort of performance before the deduction of fees, expenses, trading costs, taxes, 
you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. And then net is, you know, performance after some of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that now in the rule, there's a very clear requirement that that has to be done. Um, so that, you know, that's a big difference. There were, there were ways historically to show gross performance in one-on-one presentations or elsewhere with, without sort of violating the law. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a big difference. The, the next humongous difference is under the new rule, there's very, very strict requirements for an advisor to advertise hypothetical performance. And hypothetical performance is a pretty large category of performance. Mm-hmm. So that would include any sort of model performance, right? A, a, a strategy that you run that doesn't involve actual trading. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that would be considered hypothetical performance. Same with back-tested performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's a hum- another humongous sort of marketing issue um, that advisors have historically done really well in sort of creating testing and marketing. And now the rules basically make it nearly impossible to, to show hypothetical performance to a retail investor. I, I say nearly impossible because there are some ways that you could probably get there, but in most instances, it's going to be really difficult. Interesting. I, most advisors, or I think many advisors would use uh, the marketing material from the asset management firms uh, when discussing investment options with their clients, is that going to have to change? If uh, if we're talking about retail facing material, uh, am I as an advisor no longer going to just be able to grab the the charts from uh, asset manager X Y Z uh, and put them in front of my clients and say, see, see, this is what you should be doing because look at this performance. It's a great question, and so the the originating asset manager who's responsible for that performance is going to have to make sure that the intended audience is capable of if, of sort of digesting the the information that they're providing and disseminating. And so, I suspect in practice, we're going to see a lot more of those types of back tested presentations have sort of like you know, disclosures or legends on them saying for institutional or advisor use only. And so those advisors aren't going to be able to probably share those presentations with their end clients unless they can confirm, you know, that the end client is either like a high net worth client or a sophisticated client um, and is able to sort of understand what is being presented to them. Okay. Uh, in your experience, Max, advising attorneys around, or advising RIAs around this stuff, what don't they get or what uh, uh, is the, the hesitancy to embrace some of this stuff? What are the steps that they need to take that they're not taking? Where are advisors, I guess, en masse, where are they on this adoption of new regu- regulations? Yeah, I, w- I would say the, the biggest issue that we're seeing is some advisors just aren't certain on when they're going to come into compliance with the new rule. And some don't even realize that they have to sort of make an affirmative decision to come into compliance before the November 2022 deadline. 
And so we're seeing advisors who are like, hey, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to, you know, I want to do this testimonial on my website. And they haven't really thought through what it means for their compliance program because the SEC has been very clear in saying you can't just sort of cherry pick which aspects of the new rule you want to come into compliance with. You have to, if you're going to come into compliance with the new rule before November of 2022, you have to sort of opt into the entire new rule. And so if you're ready to ready to use a testimonial, but you're still using back tests in on your website, you're going to be in clear violation of the rule. So I think that's really one of the big areas that advisors are sort of struggling with right now. And obviously that's sort of just going to be a short-term uh, struggle. I think there's there's a lot of longer-term struggles though that that we're also seeing. The the one that we sort of touched on earlier is is just how advisors are dealing with these third-party third-party platforms like a Google Business Review and how do they go about sort of leveraging and maximizing the return on those reviews and and I I just think that we're either going to see we'll either see some guidance around the practice in the you know once November rolls around or we'll see and so guidance in the form of like an FAQ or a no action letter, or maybe we'll see some enforcement action around the practice to sort of set the stage on what the SEC staff is thinking um, and sort of create some new, you know, rules through enforcement. And, and you're saying this because how advisors would use the reviews that are popping up on a Google business review uh, is still unclear? Not not using the reviews. I think if you if you get a good review and you had nothing to do with it, and you take that review and then you start using it, I think the rules are pretty clear. What isn't clear is how you drive traffic to get reviews there, right? Did do, you know? And there hasn't been clear guidance around. Can you send a an email to all your clients? Can you send an email to just your your happiest, most satisfied clients? If you're going to send a mass email to all your clients, do you have to send it to all your former clients as well to give the the public a you know a fair picture of of who you are as an advisor and how you should be rated? And so those are some issues that we're thinking through, and I'm sure the SEC staff is thinking through as well. And I'm hopeful that they'll either sort of just turn a blind eye and say this isn't a huge issue. Let's let these advisors compete and. And, and innovate and do business how they should be just like any other business. Um, but you never really know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, it does strike me that technology always runs faster than regulators can you know, keep <laughs> up. Uh, the, some of these marketing platforms that have risen up for advisors, and I'm thinking here of the, the smart assets of the world and, and other platforms like that, where I, as an advisor, uh, will pay to have my profile there and my name there. And I'm not 100% sure of the business details, but I believe pay to uh, show up in searches from consumers of, you know, best retirement advisor in Iowa, you know, and my name pops up there uh, because I've kind of paid to have my name pop up there. This set off any alarm bells with the SEC and in, in the way that they're looking at things now? It, it doesn't, but I think what, what an advisor should understand is that those sort of sort of 
favorable reviews by an asset mark, by a Zoe Financial, by whomever, you know, those kind of online review platforms, if they're, mm-hmm. if they're identifying an advisor and they're saying you should hire this person, then it's probably going to be viewed as an endorsement under the new rule. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, you know, you, you know, you and your compliance department want to want to make sure are these vendors in compliance and is their whole operation in compliance with the new marketing rule? And I, I suspect they will be if they're not already, but you know, that's something that advisors are going to want to think through. Yeah. It, it's, it's large and complicated. And uh, uh, like I suspected nuances that aren't quite answered yet. Right. I mean, we will be having a lot of guidance going forward. Uh, as any new rule gets set by the SEC, uh, there will be a lot of, well, we kind of meant more this than we did that. And, and here's how we clarify this particular thing. So we can expect a lot of that coming forward. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. I, I sure hope the staff is more, you know, more open handed with its guidance as opposed to its enforcement tools. And we'll give advisors sort of a lot of clarity or leeway in the early months and maybe even years of this new rule. Yeah. You know, but the SEC has other priorities, right? Cryptocurrency being one, uh, you know, and I know you have some strong views on this. There has been a, I think, a real push on the part of the uh, cryptocurrency industry, I guess I can call it that, to get this stuff in front of advisors and get advisors to sell it to their clients. Dangerous, not dangerous, the wave of the future, irresponsible if they don't do it, irresponsible if they do do it. What's your view? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I'll put aside my personal views on the asset class. Um, you know, I think if anybody really wants to find them, you can go find them. I think the the reality is for advisors, I think they need to be thinking through all the compliance related aspects of recommending an asset or a security or an investment to their clients and making sure that they've a done their due diligence, b that they are comfortable with the sort of the arrangement. And by arrangement, I mean like, how does this asset trade? How do our clients hold it? Where is it custodied? And then advisors need to be thinking through, you know, policies and procedures, disclosures, form ADV issues. And then I think the the last big thing advisors really need to be focused on in the, you know, when it comes to digital assets, I'll call them. It is sort of the custody rule aspect, right? It, and and making sure that if these are considered funds or securities, and the advisor has any sort of authority over them, that they're in compliance with the custody rule, and that's always a big issue for for investment advisors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, to do it right is a lot of work for a percentage of the portfolio that even those who advocate for it say shouldn't go over five percent. Uh, is your sense that advisors are really clamoring for this stuff uh, or is this more of the industry pushing it? I, I I'll tell think you, mine, mine little... is the latter. I think it's the latter, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little pull, a little push. I think there's there's been just such a, a well-organized campaign from the industry, the crypto industry, the digital asset industry in creating this fear of missing out. And so I think Clients are truly asking their advisors, their financial advisors, their broker dealers, their RIAs, you know, is this stuff we should own? Why don't I own it? How much should I own? And advisors are in difficult positions with them, right? Because there are competitors out there 
who, who are offering it, who have access to it, who are including it in their portfolios. And so it's just this big game of, you know, I don't want to be missing out. I don't want to miss this sort of, um, you know, big pop and, and sort of have my clients looking at me like I failed them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's some of that for sure. Um, and then I think some advisors truly do want it, right? You know, they're, they're, and there's certainly a line, I think, based on sort of age and, and, and maybe like internet forwardness of advisors who, who want this for their clients and think clients need to be holding it and thinking it's truly like the future of money, right? And so mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit on both sides there. Okay. All right. Fair. Balanced. Thank you. That's a, you know, I think I know your, your personal view on the asset class and I think I share it, uh, but uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, one of the topic I wanted to, to broach with you, uh, and I know that this has been a, a thing that's flared up over the years, really, but it seems over maybe the past six months, a little bit more so conflicts around advisor compensation uh, and how advisors are paid and what they're paid for. Uh, you know, clearly the investment management side of the what an advisor does is certainly becoming commoditized. We all know this. Uh, how do advisors then justify uh, the 1% fee uh, that they're charging their clients if they could turn around and put their investment portfolio on a robo for 10 basis points or whatever? Where, do, where are advisors getting tripped up in this, in this conversation? Uh, where are they getting tripped up in, in compensation? And what are some of the fault lines they should look out for? Yeah, I, I think this is one of those conversations that just it, it's probably had way too often online, on social media, at conferences, because I think the reality is that, that most clients are still paying asset-based fees, are comfortable paying asset-based fees, and will continue to pay asset-based fees for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I think from a regulatory perspective, there, there really isn't a lot around what can go wrong or what can trip up advisors as long as fees are reasonable. And I think that's, that's a the big term here. That's, that's the debate. Yeah. That, that as long as fees are deemed reasonable, that then an advisor isn't breaching its fiduciary duty to its clients. Right. And mm-hmm. so, yes, that, that, that reasonable test can move over the years, over time, and I think it is probably slowly shifting a little bit, but right now, you know, it's certainly you know one one point two five percent asset based fees are well within the reasonableness framework for investment advisors, um, you know, who, who provide ongoing advice and management of portfolios. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I. I think so too. And people who say, well, investment management is not what advisors do anymore. Like, well, it's right there in the name, right? Registered investment advisor. It's, it's not something, you know, it's what clients are, frankly, I think, have in mind when they have a relationship with an advisor. Uh, most of them come in the door thinking this is going to be my investment portfolio. I don't know. Interesting, interesting topic, but I know that I've kept you here too long. Uh, I appreciate your time, Max. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we could talk about this stuff forever, I'm sure. But folks who want to continue the conversation, just follow you on Twitter and you're there. <laughs> and that's uh, you'll, yeah. be, you'll be commenting on all this stuff uh, uh, going forward. So Max, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.